You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, we'll also be in uh, 43, 44 a little bit as well. While you're finding your place, uh, just a couple of things. If um, you have any shoe boxes out there anywhere that you're holding on to, if you will, at the end of the service, bring those up, and we're going to have a time of prayer uh, over those uh, boxes as they're sent all over the world. I, I'm going to ask for a, um, a dear couple to stand. Uh, they don't want to, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Uh, Don and Chris Fuller, if you would, please stand. Yeah, you knew I was going to do this. Uh, he's already threatening me. I could see it in his face. Uh, this couple has uh, been instrumental this week in uh, packing a whole lot of shoe boxes. They had a team around them that I know that they're thankful for. Uh, but they have taken the charge on this thing and just really let out. And I, w- I just want to say thank you to both of you for all the time that you spent here doing this. God bless you. Thank you. <clears throat> Secondly, um, you have a unique opportunity this week. I know that you're going to have some time off. You're going to be spending some time with your family uh, around probably a lot of food. Uh, There are people on your street that uh, are going to be alone this week. Uh, They're going to be lonely this week. There are people on your street that uh, come from a different culture, even a different country, and they have no idea what all this is about. And For many of you, you've made a commitment, uh, and that commitment was to become a light in your community, and you signed up, and you got assigned some homes, and you've been praying for those homes. I think we've prayed somewhere around around 1,500 homes. Um, It's time for us to start taking that next step, and that next step is to uh, cross the street, uh, to begin connecting personally with those neighbors. And um, we asked you a few weeks ago to just take eight Uh, Some of you have as many as 40 homes that you've been praying for. Uh, Take eight of those homes. and Maybe it's that family that's from another another country. And uh, go over here and get some of these mugs. And uh, you're going to have some time off this week. You're going to have an opportunity to maybe walk the dog or get some exercise. We have some beautiful weather this week. Take that opportunity to connect with that neighbor. They need to know why you're thankful. It's one thing to do that inside of our homes and be thankful for all that God has done. It's a whole other thing to take that thankfulness outside of your home and share it with someone who may be alone and maybe doesn't have a lot to be thankful for. You're also going to have the opportunity to interact with your family this week and some of your family's lost, just like mine is. And listen, I understand. I know how hard it is to bring Jesus up to those family members uh, because they, they know who you are, right? They know you. I'll mask her off when we deal with our families. But I'm going to ask you this week to take seriously the opportunity that you've got with your family, that it's not just one more week out of the year to be thankful. But God is going to put people in your house this week that you haven't seen for a while that have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you to bring Jesus up. Bring him up in your prayer around the table. Bring him up in the grace that he's poured in your life. Bring him up when, when you want to talk about the reason of the, the hope that is within you in a world that is so broken and hopeless. Wouldn't it be a, wouldn't it be a terrible thing? Wouldn't it be a terrible thing for us to have Jesus return? Some of your family members who've been in your house multiple times have to stand before Jesus and not have faith in Christ when you had faith all along? I'm not trying to guilt you in anything. That's not how I operate. I think we need to understand the responsibility that's been put in front of us this week. So let's take that responsibility seriously, and let's let's bring Jesus up, and let's bring him up often. Hold your place in Genesis 45, and let's turn over to John chapter 18. I want to kind of set the table for what we're going to look at. Today we're we're going to land the plane. We're going to Wrap this up. We're going to finally get to the brothers finding out who this second in command is over Egypt. But I want to kind of frame this 
for what's going on with Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been telling the disciples multiple times that he's got to go to Jerusalem. Now, they, they, they can't understand that because the disciples know that thing is, the things around Jesus are getting to a fever pitch. In other words, the hatred for the Pharisees against Jesus has grown to a, a peak. They know that if Jesus goes into Jerusalem, there's going to be a confrontation. And it's almost as though Jesus wants it. It's almost as though he's pursuing it. It's almost as though Jesus knows that something's going to happen. It's almost like he's leaning into that. The disciples have, Peter in particular, has tried to talk Jesus out of this whole idea of him dying. They were in the upper room in John 13. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, including Judas. It's in that upper room that Jesus tells the disciples that someone among them is going to betray him. They leave the upper room and they make their way through the city streets. They make their way down through the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. This was not a place that was unknown to the disciples. Indications are that they would have spent time there together as Jesus would teach them, and they would pray together. So this was not an unknown area that they would retreat to. It was just right outside the walls of Jerusalem. But, but this night is different in that as the disciples are walking with Jesus, they notice there's something different about him. They, they notice that he seems to be under the weight of the world. His demeanor is different. His speech is different. His, they can see it in his eyes. Something is different about him. And they get into the garden Judas has already separated himself from the others. He's already went and received money to betray Jesus. Judas has already got around him over 200 soldiers that are going to march their way into the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers needed a positive identification of who Jesus is so to make sure that they arrest the right guy. They didn't want to make a mistake at this moment. They're in the garden. Jesus is praying. He's went deeper into the forest and left three of his disciples back. And he tells them, look, don't fall asleep. Be alert. Pray with me. He goes into the, into the deeper grove of the olive trees and he falls on his face before God. And the Bible says that he was praying under such stress that, that the sweat turned in the blood. He comes out, finds his disciples asleep. Could you not, could you not pray with me? Could you not stick by my side? He says, nonetheless, my betrayer is at hand. And in the distance, they see a mob of torches coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And I think at this moment, the disciples begin to realize what's going on. Everything that Jesus has said about what's going to happen in Jerusalem is now coming to fruition. But the only problem is, is the disciples have a different plan in mind. The, the disciples believe that, that they must protect Jesus. The, the disciples believe that they must take control. They believe that they must make sure that Jesus is protected because there's no possible way that any good could come out of Jesus being arrested and put to death like he's been talking about. I mean, I mean, certainly the disciples know better than the Son of the living God, right? Of course not. So they come, and there's this showdown between these 200-plus soldiers and Judas in front, and here's Jesus and the disciples. What possible protection could they offer to Jesus? How, how in the world could, could the disciples take control at this moment? They, this is completely out of their control. By God's design. Look at verse 10. Now, get this picture. The, the soldiers, Judas has approached Jesus, betrayed him with a kiss. The soldiers are coming to arrest. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, Peter, what are you thinking here? You really think that us 11 have any answer for the 200-plus trained soldiers in battle. Peter, you're a fisherman. P Peter, you, you've got nothing to offer here, and you are out of control, and there is no way that you're going to be able to bring this situation back in and fit your will. There's no way you're going to be able to do this. But he tries anyway. He pulls the sword, and he's such a bad swordsman, it glances off the head and cuts the guy's ear off. It's amazing what we'll do when we try to get control, right? 
Isn't it amazing the foolishness that we'll participate in when we want to be in control? Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Now, I think that, I think that Jesus is, is saying that with probably a pretty forceful tone, but maybe, if, maybe even a little bit of a sarcastic tone. Peter, put your sword up. Really? From a practical standpoint, you've got nothing here, bro. You've got nothing you can bring to the table. It's out of your hands. It's been out of your hands. That's what I've been trying to teach you for the last three and a half years. You're not in control. You're not in control when I called you from fishing to fish for men. You were not in control when the crowds were gathering, and at times they wanted to take me then. You thought you were in control then, but you're not. And you're not in control now. Put your sword up. But let me tell you who is in control. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, there is something in play here that you have no clue that God's will is being played out perfectly just as I told you, and it is God's will that I be arrested in this moment. Peter, do you not understand that there is a cup that I must drink? There is a will of God that I must surrender to. There is a plan in play here, and it's not your plan, Peter. It never was. Peter's struggling with how in the world could something so bad ever turn out into something good. Turn back to Genesis. Genesis, we're going to pick it up in 43. I've got just a few things I want to highlight for you before Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. The brothers are going to head back to Egypt. Jacob has finally relented to let Benjamin go. He, he was trying to be in control just like Peter, and he, he didn't want to take the chance in losing his other favorite son. He's already lost Joseph in his mind. and so, so God brings circumstances to bear on Jacob's life and the brother's life so that, so that Jacob finally gives up control and says, okay, God, if I lose him, I lose him. If I gain him back, I gain him back. But I'm not in control. I put my faith in you. I'm not going to walk by sight. I'm going to walk by faith. They're out of food. They're starting to feel it in their bellies. They're, they're hungry. and The brothers head back to see Joseph to buy more food. But there, there's this one thing that's been lingering in their mind that, that's really been troubling them. When they left from Egypt the first time with food, they, they open their sacks and they find the money that they had paid for the food is still in their bags. And, and this troubles them deeply. Even, even Jacob says, maybe, maybe it's an oversight. So here's what you do. Take this gift. Take the money that they, they put back in your sacks, that ended up back in your sacks, however that happened, and then take more money. Give the other money to them for the previous food that we had and take more money to buy more food, and, and maybe everything will be okay. What you've got to understand is through this entire narrative that we've been looking at, that if it had not been for God's faithfulness through Joseph, this family would have starved to death. This family and all the other families and all the other tribes, even tribes that, that were pagans that did not believe in Jehovah God, they have been the recipients of the blessing of God in spite of the fact of their sin and their disobedience and their rejection of Jehovah God. Well, look at the brothers. I mean, these brothers plotted to kill Joseph and ended up selling him into slavery. And then they've lied about it for 20 years to their dad. But yet God has blessed this family in spite of their sin and their wickedness. And so it is with you, and so it is with me. Because God is a good, good, awesome, mighty, beautiful, majestic Father that in spite of my own brokenness, in spite of my own disobedience, and in spite of my own wickedness, God still blesses. That's just the kind of Father that He is. If it had not been for God's faithfulness, they would have all died. If it had not been for God's faithfulness to Joseph when he was sold to the Midianite traders, if it had not been for God's faithfulness when, when Joseph was sold to Potiphar, if it had not been for God's faithfulness when, when, when Potiphar's wife accused Jake, uh, Joseph wrongly, if it had not been for God's grace for, for Joseph to make his way into a prison and there to meet two of the most powerful men in the court of Egypt at that time, if it had not been for God's faithfulness and God's grace to bring Joseph out of that prison, 
and making him second in command, every one of these people would have starved to death. And yet, and yet these brothers have not seen the providence of God yet. The reason I say that is because of how they're responding. Something else you've got to understand. God didn't approve of the brothers plotting to kill their own brother. God was not on board with that. God was not on board with those brothers selling Joseph. God was not on board when Potiphar's wife accused Joseph wrongly. God was not on board when he was put into a prison. God was not in favor of Joseph lingering in a prison all those many years, 13 between Potiphar's house and the prison. God was not in favor of that cupbearer lying to Joseph, saying, absolutely, Joseph, when I get before the king, I'll not forget you. What did he do? He forgot him, and Joseph stayed another two years in prison. God didn't approve of all that. But what did God do? He took every bit of that mess and turned it into something that not only blessed Joseph, but blessed the entire world. Now, if God hasn't changed, and He hasn't, whatever circumstances you're in, Whatever pain you're in, whatever valley you're in, when you're in the middle of it, it seems like the circumstances that we're in is just a disaster, right? It's just a disaster. Everything is going wrong, and it comes in waves, does it not? One thing goes wrong, and then 10 things go wrong, and then 30 things go wrong, and you get so down deep in that mess that you get to the point where you give up on God. You just give up. And when we give up, we don't see His hand. We don't see any work that He's doing. We're so consumed with our own pain and our own difficulty and our own problems, we don't see God working. And, and then we get to that moment when we blame God for all of it. I mean, that's the next natural, next natural step, right? If God is loving and God is powerful, then why doesn't God pull me out of the mess that I'm in? Well, then maybe He doesn't love and maybe, maybe He's not in control Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's the one at fault. Notice the brothers. They make their way back to Egypt. And as they're going back to Egypt, the fear of what's going to happen there is overwhelming. Now remember, they've got Benjamin with them. Look at verse 18 in chapter 43. And the men were afraid because they brought they were brought to Joseph's house. Now this is uncommon. Now the, the brothers are thinking they're just going to go into the courtyard. They're going to they're produce Benjamin. Simeon is going to be released because that was the deal. The brothers are then going to be able to buy more food. And they're going to head back home to their dad. That's what should happen. But as soon as they get into the walls of Egypt... A servant recognizes them, has been looking for them, and takes all of the brothers inside of Joseph's home. This can't be good in their minds. They're thinking there's no way that this is going to turn out good. As a matter of fact, it's going to get worse, and here's what they think. It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Now, hold on a second here. Because I, I'm pretty confident I'm not the only person in the room who does this. When we are in trouble and desperate situations and disastrous circumstances, when things aren't going our way, isn't it amazing how often we, in our thinking, makes the situation ten times worse than it is? Okay, I think I got some head shaking there, yeah. Now, what do the brothers know at this point? The brothers know that Joseph, who they don't know yet, all he said is, is that if you'll bring Benjamin back, I'll release Simeon to you. I'll sell you food. We can move on. That's, that's, that's all they have to know. That's all they have to work with. But notice what their imagination is doing here. Their imagination begins to do what I call a serious case of the what-ifs. You ever have that? Oh, yeah, when things are bad, they can get really bad. Okay, so I sit down and I think about what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if it turns out this way? And what if it turns out this way? And what if it goes this route? Well, I've got to have a plan. You know what that all is? It's all about you being in the driver's seat. You've got to have a plan, right? The plan's about you and you, your control. And these brothers have come to the conclusion that there's possible, no possible good that can come out of this. Uh, 
that what-if scenario in your mind, you know where that always goes? Pessimism. Always pessimism. It can't possibly be good. And then when you add to that pessimism the idea that God has abandoned you, and you add to that pessimism that God can't be trusted, and you add to that pessimism that God has turned his back on you, that you're in a prime, prime location, first of all, to never see the hand of God working in your life, and second of all, to be a person who is filled with bitterness and anger. You see how it all just kind of flows together? These brothers see nothing but bad here. They don't see any possibility this can turn out to be good. So they're going to preempt this. They're going to, <clears throat> they're going to work their plan. What's their plan? Well, they're going to explain the money as quickly as they can. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and, and we, when we were leaving, we found that there's money in our sacks, and, and, and we don't want anybody to think that we stole the food and stole the money. So, so here's the money, and I want you to understand that we didn't do anything wrong. The money just showed up in our sack, and please have mercy on us. They're trying their best to work this thing out. So we brought the money back. We do, know who, we do not know who put it in our sack. Verse 23, this is incredible. He replied, peace to you. When you're in that moment of the what-ifs that's consuming you, look for the person of peace in your life. There is somebody in your life that is saying to you, there's peace here. God is working. Now, you can just discount that. You can just cast them aside. You can just ignore their opinions, ignore what they're saying. But I'm telling you, in my life, when I've got into this mess, God sends somebody into my path who's the person of peace and wants to remind me of the sovereignty and the providence of a mighty and holy God. You've got that person. Because God does it all the time for His children. He wants to get our attention, and he'll send somebody in our path. And this person says, Peace be you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your Father has put treasure in sacks for you. I received your money. In other words, this pagan, Gentile, idol worshiper says to the brothers, Hey, your God is the one who took care of that for you. It's amazing where we can find truth sometimes. And then they brought Simeon out. But Joseph is going to test the brothers one more time before he reveals himself. So he brings the, the brothers into his house. Now, this is an amazing thing. He brings the brothers into the house. They're going to have a big banquet. They're going to have a big dinner. Now, the Egyptians couldn't sit with the Hebrews, so the Hebrew boys have their own table over here, and the servants sit them in birth order. Now, how could they possibly know that? Even, even the brothers are looking at each other going, how did they know that Benjamin's the youngest and Reuben is the oldest and everybody is sitting in order in between? How could they know that? Then they notice that Benjamin's getting five times as much food as the rest of them, and Benjamin's food's coming from the table of the Pharaoh. What's up with that? You look over at Benjamin, he's got like a mound of food. What is going on here? Something is up. So they get their bags filled up with food once again as much as they can carry. And Joseph says to his servant, take my silver goblet, the, probably the one he was drinking at at this banquet, the one he was drinking out of, and I want you to take that goblet and I want you to put it in the youngest bag of food and then let him leave. So they left. They're just about out of town and the servant catches up with them. And he says, I have... I have heard that one of you has stolen the silver goblet from which the second in command over Egypt drinks from, and I'm going to ask you to empty your sacks because we're going to find it because one of you stole it. And Judah and the brothers freak out. They absolutely freak out. Even saying that if you find it among one of these boys, then put them to death. That's how, that's how confident they were that they had not stolen anything from Joseph. Well, they open each sack from the oldest down to the youngest, and when they get to Benjamin's sack and they open it up, you know what they find? A silver cup. Now, in this moment, the brothers had some options. If these brothers were still the same brothers from 20 years ago, here's what they would have done. Well, Benjamin, good luck with that, bro. We're heading home. It's on you, man. You stole it. You obviously did it. So, so we're just going to let you go back to Egypt, and we're heading home to Jacob. 
That's what they would have done because they'd already done it to Joseph. But these brothers, these brothers respond in a way that you might not be expecting. But first, I want you to see, look at verse, um, look at verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your service. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we, and we also, the hand of the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose the hand of the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, the servant says, listen, I'm only going to keep one of you, the one where the cup is found. Benjamin is going to be enslaved to Egypt. The rest of you can go back home. Even gives them the opportunity, and they won't do it. But I want you to know something else. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Isn't it interesting that every time something goes wrong in these brothers' lives, they immediately go back to 21 years previous. We saw this when they were standing before Joseph the first time. And the guilt and the shame of selling out that brother when they were so young, that guilt and that shame is still there. They've been carrying it for 21 years. And every time something bad happens in their life, they immediately go to the fact that this is reprobation, repayment for our sins of the past. Let me ask you a question. Have you been carrying around the sin and the guilt of something you did two days ago or 20 years ago? Are you still carrying that mess around on your back? And every time something goes wrong in your life, you don't have enough money to pay the bills. You don't, you don't have, you don't have your marriage where it needs to be. Your, your kids are, are going off the rails. And when you look at that situation, you immediately say, well, I deserve it because of that. Man, that's a horrible place to live. A guilty conscience from the past always sees trouble as retribution. But, but is, that, is that how Christ is meaning for you to live? I mean, is, is, is Christ and the Godhead Trinity, this, this entity up in heaven that is constantly looking for the next opportunity to beat you over the head and bring all kinds of bad stuff into your life to make you pay for something, to make you, to make you pay the debt for something you've done. Is it up to you to pay that debt back? Is it up to you to finally do all the right things and do it all consistently and perfectly forever and never make another mistake so that God will then be pleased with you and say that, oh yeah, you're okay. Come on in. Is that your idea? Judah. Judah's going to do something pretty amazing here. Chapter 44. He, he says to Pharaoh's second-in-command, who he doesn't know is his brother. Look at verse 33 in chapter 44. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. In other words, Judah says, look, if, if we go home without Benjamin, Jacob's going to die. So here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to put myself in as a substitute. Now, Judah, Judah, in one sense, hasn't done anything wrong here. The brothers haven't done anything wrong. They didn't steal the silver cup. But in essence, they have done something wrong by selling their brother out. So these brothers are guilty in one respect, but in this particular instance, they didn't steal the cup. And Judah says, I'm going to step forward and I'm going to be the substitute and you let all of your wrath fall upon me. You put me in as a slave and you let Benjamin go home. Does that sound remotely familiar? Sure it does. Remember when Jesus told Peter, there's a cup that I must drink from? You know what that cup was? The wrath of God. The wrath of God that was to be poured out on every single disobedient, evil sinner upon this world. And Jesus steps in. And the big difference between Jesus and Judah is Jesus was absolutely, perfectly pure in every way. No sin, no disobedience, no evil. And he steps in and he says, I will become the substitute to allow people to go free. Judah, something's happened to Judah. This is not the Judah that sold Joseph into slavery. It's amazing how that life, 
trouble, conviction, has brought Joseph or Judah to the place where he's no longer making it about him. Maybe that was the goal of all of this trouble in Judah and the brother's life, all the point. Maybe this is the point. This, this is how God, God takes something horrible and turns it into something good. Chapter 45. That was all introduction, by the way. <laughs> that was all introduction. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself. When Judah responds this way, when the brothers are responding with sacrifice rather than selfishness, when the brothers are responding not by trying to take control, but they have now realized they are out of control, there's no way they can control any of this. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Man, can you get, can, can you get this picture in your mind? Over 21 years has passed. The brothers have thought Joseph was either dead or sold into some remote tribe somewhere. Probably, certainly, Joseph had died from the famine. And these brothers, in this single moment in time, get overwhelmed with the reality that the man that they've been dealing with is none other than their brother Joseph. And I would imagine in that moment the brothers are trying to piece together in their mind how in the world this could work out the way that it did. Because everything that they did was meant as a curse. Everything that they did was about their own selfishness. Everything that they did was about them. And all these many years of guilt and shame that they've been harboring in their heart, they have regretted that day. They have regretted turning him over. We see that in their heart and how they're responding. And then in a single moment of time, the plan of God in all of this overwhelms them so much so that they are dumbfounded. I'm getting to a point in my life where when I begin to see what God is doing around me, and when I begin to see what, how He's knitting things together that I couldn't have possibly imagined or come up with, what it's doing in my heart and in my life is I want to join that work so bad that I'm willing to surrender all of my plans, surrender all of my presuppositions, surrender all of my notes and outlines, and simply say, God, I'm going with you where you're going because that's a lot you're better than anything I could come up with. Have you got there yet? That's what God's doing in my life right now. He's like, just, just wait for a little bit and notice what I'm doing and I want you to come and join me in what I'm already doing. And what I'm doing is far better than anything you're going to come up with. But oh, we love to make our plans, don't we? And then we love to take those plans and we love to force them on God and God's saying, no, I got something better than that. Because God has this amazing ability to take my terrible, disastrous circumstances and turn them around for something beautiful and amazing. Notice how Joseph responds to these brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. That is an amazing phrase, right? Just those few words is absolutely amazing. Here's why it is. Joseph has the power and the ability to kill every one of those brothers. All you have to do is snap his fingers. And quite honestly, if you allow revenge and bitterness and anger to take a root down in your soul and in your heart, that's how you will respond. And it may be that for some of us, we look at this and say, come on, Joseph, now's your time, right? Now's your time to get even. Now's your time to really let the hammer fall. But he says to his brothers, come near, please. He's not going to pull a sword. He's going to wrap his arms around him. They've not begged for forgiveness. They've not repented. They've not said, Joseph, I'm sorry for how we treated you 21 years previous. But Joseph extends grace to these brothers. Verse 5, 
Well, let me back up. And he came near and he said, I am your brother, verse 4. Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Sold into Egypt. Now, those brothers didn't sell Joseph into Egypt, now did they? No, they sold Joseph to some Midianite Ishmaelite traders. Whatever the Ishmaelite traders do with him, they didn't care. But notice how Joseph views the entire circumstances of his last 21 years of life through the lens of God's faithfulness and God's providence. He says, you sold me into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Okay, listen. That kind of love and that kind of grace and that kind of forgiveness and that kind of response only comes from Jehovah God. It can't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come from your flesh because your flesh is going to say, take off their heads. You deserve this. That kind of response only comes from God and it also only comes from a man who's experienced the grace of God. You see, here's the thing. If you've been the recipient of God's grace, guess what you're called to do? You're called to dispense the grace of God, even to those who are called your enemies. Yeah, that's not easy. Here are men standing before him whom he's chosen to embrace rather than reject. How does that happen? Because this man, Joseph, has experienced the grace of God over and over and over again. And in that moment when he should have given retribution, when he should have gotten angry, he responds with grace. That's what the grace of God can do in the life of a person over periods of time where you've been the recipient of that grace. You respond with grace. Now that one person is going to be in your house this week that did you wrong 20 years ago. You're already stressed out about the fact they're going to be in your house. And you've been running through your mind all the stuff that person did to you 20 years ago. Can, can I offer to you that, that maybe instead of thinking about the retribution, may, maybe instead of trying to harm them in some way, take a step back and take a look at how God has blessed you and poured grace into your life in spite of the fact of your disobedience. And it's there you'll find the grace to extend to that other person. Joseph says, don't beat yourselves up. And here's why. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you as a remnant on the earth. Now, this connects back to the covenant promises. God promised some promises, made some promises to Abraham. And those promises were passed on to Isaac. And Isaac passed those promises right on to Jacob. And Jacob now is passing those, will pass those promises right on to the boys. And here's the point. God always keeps his promises. And Joseph says, in spite of the famine, God had a plan. And part of that plan was me being second in command of Egypt. So God sent me before you. God always keeps his promises. And then he says this. So it was not you that sent me here, but God. Wait a minute. I thought it was the brothers who sold him out for some silver. Yeah. And that's why I said that God didn't approve of that act. That was not what God would have had those brothers to do. But here's what God did. God took that evil move of those brothers and took that thing and flipped it on its head and turned it into a blessing, not only for the Jewish people that would become the covenant promises recipients, but even the pagan nations of the world, even the nation of Egypt who worshiped a sun god. That's how God works, right? No hatred, no malice. God has taken evil and turned it around. And this is what we have to take away from the story in the life of Joseph. That it wasn't just that Joseph was successful in the end. And see, if we, if we walk out of here today and we only think that, that God blesses those who are successful, because you could kind of make an argument that, okay, God blessed Joseph because he knew that Joseph was going to be successful, so therefore God is, is, is pleased with what Joseph accomplished in Egypt. No, you'll miss the point if you walk away with that idea. You see, God is concerned about the faithfulness on the journey, not the end goal. You, you may never be called to be the second in command of anything. 
You may never be in a position where you're out front. You may serve Jesus Christ the rest of your life behind the scenes. But here's what God values. God values faithfulness on the journey, not the end result. That's important for you to know. You know why that's important for you to know? It's because the one who bought you and purchased you with a price, the one who empowers you and enables you to live out the life he's called you to is not going to cast you aside in the middle of the journey when you get it wrong. You see, that's where the grace figures into the equation. Will he convict you? Yes. Will he correct you? Absolutely. But he will never, ever cast you aside. And the beauty of that is you don't have to carry around the guilt of what you did 20 years ago because you've already had a substitute step in and pay that price and set you free and give you the forgiveness that you've been trying to get from the world or from other people all your entire life. You've been set free because the debt has been paid. You had a substitute step in on your behalf, and your faith in Him has set you free. And there's some of you who haven't even done that yet. So you have no other option but just to bear up under the weight of the shame and the guilt yourself, and you know that's not working. One of the best ways to miss the blessings of God is simply to give up too early. That in the moment of your pain, in the moment of your valley of distress and trouble, is to throw your hands up and say, it's not worth it. That God's at the root of this trouble. God's at the root of this pain. And I'm going to blame Him and I'm going to get angry with Him and I'm going to yell at Him and, and He can go do whatever He wants to do, but I'm going to go make my own plan and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to get out of my own mess. Well, that might be your plan, but I'm going to tell you where that plan is going to lead you right back through the God who purchased you with a price, Christian. You can't run away from Him. You can blame Him. You can yell at Him. You can get angry with Him. But I'm telling you, it's going to bring you right back to a face-to-face with Him. So why not, why not lean into that now? Lost person, why not accept the substitute that has been placed as the wrath as the wrath of God placed upon that substitute, why not put your faith there, have that shame and that guilt erased from your life so that you can now live out the life that Christ has called you to? Why do you want to keep bearing up under that mess? Wouldn't it be great to go into Thanksgiving this year with a truly thankful heart, having experienced the grace of God in a way you've never possibly imagined, and then see God take your brokenness and turn it around into something beautiful that becomes a blessing to someone else. You can't do that. I can't do that. Only God can do that. And it's time to lean into what God is already doing in your life. Father in heaven, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for the record we have of it. But Father, if all we see is Joseph as a faithful man, we've missed the point. The hero of this story And all stories is your grace and your forgiveness and you. That's the hero. For it was only by your hand that the evil done to Joseph could be turned around into something good by your sovereign grace. And Father, we recognize that you have not changed. We recognize that your love for humanity was put on display outside the walls of Jerusalem on a cross. And Jesus bore the full wrath of God so that I wouldn't have to. The substitute has already come. And the substitute has already taken the pain and the wrath and the shame and the guilt. And all that is left is for those who are still trying to walk in control and power of their own life to surrender to that reality by faith by faith admitting their own sinfulness, by faith recognizing they can't fix themselves, by faith trusting that Jesus is both Savior, Lord, King, resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and giving up control to a King who wants to do something with our life far greater than we could possibly imagine. And for the disciple in the room who 
constantly, constantly trying to take control, worrying constantly, trying to force their plan upon you, getting to the point where they don't even believe that you're good anymore. Repentance. Bowing before their king is their response. Surrendering control of their life to you yet again is their response. We praise you. We thank you for your presence and power in this place. Have your will and your way during this time of response. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's worship together. If you have a need, I'll be glad to pray with you. ask uh, just off the cuff you know how I do this sometimes I'm gonna ask for all of our teenagers come up here and lay your hands on these boxes if you're on the stage come on down uh, come on right now right now all of our teens all of our teens and all of our team ministry come up here lay your hands on these boxes 
and we're going to have a prayer dedication. Go ahead. Don't be afraid. It's all good. I know you weren't expecting this, but you should be used to that by now. Come on. Been here six and a half years, and I do this on a regular basis. It's okay. All right, teens, lay your hands. If you want to come up behind a teen, lay your hand on them. That would be awesome too, okay? All of our teen workers, that would be great. All of our student ministries, Pastor Ryan, see Ashley over there, anybody else who wants to come in. Awesome. You may be wondering why I'm asking for them. Well, there's going to be a day, and it's already here, that uh, these teens are going to be taking up the mantle of missions. They already are. But the missionaries that God's going to use here in our community and across the world are right here, right here in this group that we're pouring into. So what better way, what better group to dedicate these boxes than this group right here? Father in heaven, inside of each of these boxes and all the boxes that have been packed this week um, is just a small token to us. It's not anything significant in our minds. It's stuff that we were able to get, maybe in a bargain basket or a sale or just simple things. And Father, how much can we actually put in a shoebox but small, simple things? But what's simple to us is incredibly profound to those halfway around the world who are having to get their meals out of a dump. And Father, it's through these simple things that you can do something incredible and have been for many years through Samaritan's Purse. So Father, do it again. Boxes are coming in to churches, into the collection centers. They're being processed, boxed, placed on planes, in boats, buses, cars, going all over the world. Simple things. But Father, when you take simple things into your hand, You do profound, incredible work with it. So for all the little tokens in each of these boxes, they really didn't cost us a lot. Take them and use them to open a door for the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine in dark places. We count it as a privilege to have a part in Operation Christmas Child. Each one of these boxes contains a miracle that you're going to use and you're going to work out in the lives of people that we will never meet on this side of eternity. So you may you receive all the glory and all the honor for what's about to take place through the thousands, even millions of shoeboxes that are being sent all over the world to represent your grace and your love. Thank you. Thank you to this church body. But thank you to you, Lord, for the work you're about to do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.